The second reading this morning is from Romans chapter 1. I will read verses 14 through 18. Hear the word of God. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men and women who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this week and next week, we will be looking at these five verses uh, from the book of Romans, Romans 1.14 through Romans 1.18. In verses 16 and 17, there are three key phrases that I want to lift up, and they are, number one, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Number two, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And number three, the in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Three key verses. We'll look at two this week, and we're going to look at one next week. Three key phrases about the gospel. Now, you already know that gospel is just an old-fashioned word for good news, but what is the good news? In Luke chapter 9, we have this scene of Jesus sending out his disciples for an initial evangelism campaign. Luke 9, 6 tells us that the, that the disciples, quote, went from, went through the villages, preaching the gospel, and healing everywhere. So, what did they preach? What did those commissioned by Jesus to be his messengers talk about? What was the content of the good news? What is the gospel? We live in an era of a seemingly infinite array of kinds of news. No matter what you want to hear, there is a channel out there that you can tune into which will give you exactly what you want to hear. We're going to spend one year working our way carefully through the book of Romans, and if at the end of this year we are able to simply and clearly state what the good news is, then this will be time well spent. In these two verses, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul strikes themes that he will develop more fully in the chapters ahead. And this morning, I'm going to focus on just two points. Number one, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And number two, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So, first things first. Raise your hand if you are ashamed of the gospel. 
Okay, raise your hand if you shared the gospel with anyone this week. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, which seems like a funny way to introduce his subject. When Elon Musk stands up to talk about his electric car, you wouldn't expect him to say, I am not ashamed of the Tesla. When Doug Peterson stands up to talk about his team, you wouldn't expect him to say, I'm not ashamed of the Eagles. So why does Paul say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? James Stewart of Edinburgh observed, quote, There is no sense in declaring that you're not ashamed of the gospel. Oh, hold on. There is no sense in declaring that you're not ashamed of something unless you have been tempted to feel ashamed of it. Why would Paul be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? Why would we, who believe in the gospel, be so abashed in sharing that good news with other people? I think that the answer is simply because the gospel is crazy. Let me say that again. I think it's because the gospel is crazy. If we are ever going to stop being ashamed of the gospel, if we're ever going to get over being shy about opening our mouths about Jesus, we are going to have to start telling the truth about this fact. The gospel is crazy. From the natural Human point of view, the gospel doesn't make any sense to the natural, unaided human intellect, to the normal, rational person, not specifically enlightened by revelation through the Holy Spirit. The gospel is crazy. Listen to this long passage, and I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles now. You can pull open your pew Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In the pew Bibles, this is on page 1131. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading at verse 17. I hope I have the same translation as you have. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 17. Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly. Which is another word for crazy. The word of the cross is folly. To those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Now, wise in Paul's lexicon is the opposite of crazy. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is... The one who is wise, where is the scribe, where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Do you see that? God inverts the relationship between crazy and sane, between wise and foolish. God takes the world's view of these things and turns it upside down. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Ha! 
It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Greek and Jew, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What I want to say to you right up front is that Paul understands that the gospel is crazy. That it's foolishness from the human point of view. The last thing you could accuse Paul of is being simple-minded. Paul understands that the gospel makes, makes no sense from the world's point of view. And we need to understand that too. Paul is a very educated and sophisticated person. He's educated and sophisticated in more than one language and more than one cultural a culture. He is bilingual. He is bicultural, which means that he is more educated and more sophisticated than most of the people in this room. First, he was a Roman by birth, which means that his parents were also Roman. We don't know how far back the Roman citizenship ran in his family. So Paul was plugged into the broader, international, global, non-Jewish world. He reads and he writes Greek, which is the international language of his time. He knows Greek philosophy. He knows Greek poetry, which would be the equivalent of having been liberally educated in the arts and the sciences. And according to that Greek worldview, the gospel is folly and foolishness. The Greeks seek wisdom, Paul writes... They did that through logic and through philosophy. The rough equivalent in our day would be the natural sciences. The high priests and the popularizers of the ancient Greek worldview were Plato and Aristotle. For us, the high priests and popularizers are media personalities like Neil Tyson and Bill Nye the science guy. The Greek Philosophers look at what Paul is preaching and say, folly, foolishness, that's not wisdom. And Tyson and I look at the biblical worldview and they say the same thing. Folly and foolishness, that's not science. Paul understood this. He is not naive. Secondly, Paul was also a Jew by birth, a member of the Pharisees, a very strict sect within Judaism. He was very religious. And while the Greeks were looking for wisdom, the Jews were looking for signs. They wanted miracles and other supernatural displays. Paul preaches Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block for them. Different reasons than for the Greeks. Perhaps they couldn't square the resurrected Jesus with their understanding of scripture. Perhaps they were looking for even more miracles than Jesus performed. But in the world that Paul is operating in, a Jew, a sophisticated Jew living among Greeks, Paul faces opposition from both Greeks and Jews for different reasons in each case. But both think that what Paul is preaching is crazy. In the view of the world of Paul's time, the secular Greek world or the religious Jewish world, take your pick, in the view of the world of Paul's time, the gospel is crazy. And so someone 
even someone like the Apostle Paul might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. It's hard to open your mouth if everyone thinks that what you're saying is crazy. We like people to agree with us, which is one of the reasons we do such a lousy job at evangelism, because we're more concerned with having people agree with us than we are with the state of their souls. On Friday and Saturday, I was at Fourth Presbyterian Church in Bethesda, Maryland, at a meeting of our presbytery. Our own Marcos Ortega was examined for ordination. He did a terrific Job. I'm very impressed by how well prepared he is for the ministry. I mean, you have to imagine, you know, you're there up in front of a hundred pastors and elders, and for one hour, they're grilling you on Bible content, on theology, on the Reformed tradition, on church government. And Marcos did beautifully. In fact, he did much better than I did when I was in that same position. Marcos is currently serving a church in upstate New York, and pretty soon there will be a service of ordination for him. I'll keep you posted about that. But another thing that happened at the Presbytery meeting was a report from what is called the Evangelical Presbyterian Church World Outreach. That's the mission-sending arm of our denomination. A number of years ago, the EPC made a strategic decision to only send missionaries to those parts of the world where the gospel isn't being heard at all. The slogan of World Outreach is, going to hard places. And their goal is to tell the story of Jesus in places where there is no indigenous church. My parents were missionaries in Switzerland. We thought that was hard. So the EPC's world outreach is focused on bringing the gospel to Muslims in the North Caucasus region of the Russian Federation into the republics of Dagestan, Chechnya, and Ingushetia. The missionaries that we support are in regions where there is not a single Christian living. Everyone is either a Muslim or they're a post Marxist atheist. And the locals must think that these missionaries are crazy. That was what the Apostle Paul faced as a pioneering missionary in places like Turkey and Greece and Italy. When Paul came to town, he was the only Christian there. And so Paul knows what he's talking about when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because certainly... He had plenty of times when he must have felt tempted to be ashamed when people opposed him to his face and told him that he was crazy or worse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, even though everyone thinks that I'm nuts. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, even though I am constantly opposed by people. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, even though I have been repeatedly the victim of mob violence and have, on a number of occasions, barely escaped with my life. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now that should capture our attention. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And that's why Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Sure, people thought he was crazy. 
But if the seed of that gospel could be planted, if it could take root in the life of just one individual, it was the power of God for their salvation. That's why Paul put up with the grief that he faced. That's what encouraged him in spite of constant opposition. If we wrap our minds around what Paul means when he calls the gospel the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, I think that we might become bold as Paul in sharing that gospel. The middle term in this phrase, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the middle term is salvation. And so we need to be really clear about what the Bible means when it uses this word salvation. What does it mean to be saved by God? In one of my earliest attempts at evangelism, I must have been seven or eight years old, Down the street from me lived another boy who was my age. His name was Ricky Decker, and his family was the scourge of our neighborhood. Ricky's mother was always at the door screaming at her kids. In their backyard, they had a mean dog who bit my brother David. In their front yard, they had half-built hot rods up on cinder blocks. And Ricky's older brother was the first person I ever knew who was sent away to what used to be called reform school. One day, in my youthful enthusiasm, I asked Ricky, Hey, Ricky, have you ever been saved by Jesus and baptized? Now, full disclosure, I had not myself at that time been baptized. But in my youthful mind, I knew that being baptized was somehow connected with being saved. Hey, Ricky, have you ever been saved by Jesus and baptized? And he says, I don't know nothing about being baptized, but I was saved by Jesus. Now, I was sure that this kid had never seen the inside of a church, and so I said, when were you saved? And he said, I was being chased by a dog, and as I ran, I screamed, Jesus, 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 and that dog stopped chasing me. I was saved by Jesus. Now, that's an interesting testimony. But when Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, he isn't talking about being saved from the jaws of a dog. Paul will develop more fully what he means by salvation in the coming chapters, but we get just a clue about what we're saved from in verse 18 of the passage that we read, where Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What we are saved from is the wrath of God. The wrath of God which is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. God hates sin because God loves holiness. God hates dishonesty Because God loves truth. God hates murder. Because God loves life. God hates selfishness. Because God loves generosity. God hates perversion. Because God loves purity. God hates cruelty. Because God loves kindness. When God looks at the world which he created perfect and beautiful. And when he sees it 
mangled and ugly because of sin, his response is righteous wrath. Imagine the most beautiful painting in the world. Now, imagine that painting covered in childish graffiti or left to rot in a basement or used as a rag to mop the floor. The love and honor and respect that we have for the beauty and the purity of that work of art is what will fire our wrath towards anyone who stupidly destroys it. Many times... In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Bible describes God as a consuming fire. That's a poetic way of describing God's response to anything that destroys what he loves. To be saved is to be saved from the wrath of God. And God's wrath is a blazing fire of God's holiness against sin, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, as Paul puts it. Now we need to notice in this that Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now that's both a sobering truth and an encouraging truth. It's sobering because it's clear from Scripture that not everyone will be saved. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we know that everyone, by simple divine justice, deserves the wrath of God. No one is exempt. 1 John 1.18 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive only ourselves and the truth is not in us. All of us have a sin problem, and that is sobering. But here's the encouraging part. God's salvation is available to everyone. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter who our parents were. In Acts 10, 34 and 35, Peter says, God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is accepted by him. There are no privileged people in the kingdom of God because God's salvation is available to everyone who believes. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans will lay out the gospel for us in a way that is crystal clear, convicting, penetrating, illuminating. This morning we've only scratched the surface. But... Even before we have the whole story, even before we work our way through this whole book, I want to ask you naively what I asked Ricky Decker. Have you been saved by Jesus and baptized? Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not face God's wrath, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The gospel is good news. The gospel tells us that if we will believe in Jesus, that the wrath of God will be turned away from us. And rather than facing God's wrath, which we deserve because of our sin, we will instead enjoy God's salvation. To be saved, I must first recognize that I am a sinner, deserving God's wrath. I must first recognize that God's law is holy 
and that my disregard and contempt for God's law brings me death and destruction. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin and convinces us of our need to change. But conviction isn't enough. Recognizing that I have a problem with God is only the beginning. The next step is recognizing that Jesus bore the wrath of God, God's blazing fury against all sin on the cross. And if I will place my faith in Jesus and in his atoning sacrifice, then my sins find satisfaction in the cross and God's wrath is turned away from me. By faith in Jesus Christ, my sins are atoned for and forgiven. They are removed from me as far as east is from the west, as the Bible puts it. So let me ask you again. Have you been saved by Jesus and baptized? We're having a baptism, by the way, later this month. Some of you who have come to faith in Jesus Christ but have not been baptized. The last Sunday of February... Come join the fun. We'll be baptizing people. Do you understand that you individually are a sinner deserving the wrath of God? And have you individually placed your faith in Jesus and in his atoning sacrifice for your sin? That's the gospel in a nutshell. We'll get to more of the details as the weeks unfold. And that gospel is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. In a few moments, we will share the Lord's Supper, which is a kind of reenactment of the Last Supper, the supper that Jesus shared with his disciples on the night before he was executed. And we share this sacrament to remind us of what Jesus did for us so that we might be saved if we are willing to believe. As you come to communion today, receive the bread and the cup in faith as a sign and as a seal of your own salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation To everyone who believes. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that you would seal to our hearts the truths of your eternal word. And we pray that you would activate our wills so that we might move toward you in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.